This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Let the experts at Farm Bureau Health Plans coach you through it when you need great health care coverage at a price you can afford. They've been protecting Tennesseans since 1947. Day two at the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis, Indiana. Amy Wells, Mike Keith, good to see you again as things keep moving, things keep happening. Fun day, a lot more fun days to come. Absolutely. Indianapolis is alive with combine activity. I love it. It really has been fun to see everybody back together. We've made the analogy that it's a little like homecoming or a high school reunion or something like that. It's been great to see everybody back in the same space doing what we're all familiar with, and that is the scouting combine. That's what we're doing. That's and what we're doing. We get a chance to talk to a lot of different people, including NFL draft experts. And the first one on tap for this edition of the OTP, Dane Brugler from The Athletic. Oh, man. Love Dane Brugler. He's publishing The Beast. He's working on it right now. And so it was awesome to be able to talk to him. Dane Brugler with us as part of the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Club. Dane Brugler, better known for a lot of things. The Beast. Sure, yeah. When will we see the – and for those who don't know, The Beast is the most thorough report on the upcoming draft prospects that you will find anywhere. You can get it with a subscription to The Athletic. That's all you need. Okay. So a subscription to The Athletic gets you The Beast. How long does it take you to put together, oh. and when do you anticipate it being ready this spring? The goal is always the first week in April. You okay. know, try to get it three weeks before the draft. It's a, it's a year-round process. I mean, I already have notes for the 2023 draft guide. You know, it's something that is a comprehensive process that takes a long time to put together, and there's a lot of steps to it. Uh, you know, the season, uh, you're, you're focusing on the tape. Right now, this is the cross-checking period where you go to the Senior Bowl, you go to the Shrine Game, you go to the NFLPA Collegiate Bowl, kind of just checking off boxes, you know, making sure what you saw on tape is what what uh, what you're seeing at these events, and then right here at the combine. This is a big event. This is this is for uh, first and foremost the medicals. You want to the, the interview process is big, and then the on-field drill. If a guy runs fast, runs slow, doesn't perform up to expectations, well, it's back to the tape to figure out why, and that that's all part of the draft guide and what makes it, uh, in my opinion, the most comprehensive guide out there. How do you keep all of that straight? It's, um, <laughs> seriously, though, you expect to see Dame Brugler walking around with, like, stacks of paper and just, like, Post-its flying everywhere. How do you keep all of this in order? I have no life. That's okay. basically it. Yeah. I've, I've got my family at home, uh, four kids. and uh, You have four now. Yeah. Just had right. twins in the summer. So Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank I you. think. A little scouting assistance. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's how I look at it. But, yeah, it's, it's the family and it's this. That's, that's what I, uh, I focus on. And, you know, it's... It's a grind, but I love it. There's nothing better than watching a tape of a player, discovering his skills, understanding what he does best, how that's going to translate to the next level, and then talking to him, learning more about you know his journey. And that's my favorite part of this because no two players have the same journey from when they started playing football to you know right now on the doorstep of the NFL. So it's a fascinating look at these guys that the journey and understanding that helps you understand where they're headed to. You know, adversities they've had to overcome. You know, just their experience in other sports, uh, different things like that. So it's it's fascinating. Every draft is like a child. Everyone sure. everyone is different, has different characteristics as you approach this combine week. 
What are the storylines that you think are going to shape this draft going forward? Well, I, I think that you know quarterbacks always drive the conversation, and this is a weird quarterback year. Last year, we had five quarterbacks in the top 15. This year, we might not have any in the top 15. Uh, we have a really you know diverse group of quarterbacks where one guy gives you one thing, another guy gives you another, and you have to figure out, okay, are any of these guys good enough to lead us to the playoffs? Are any of these quarterbacks good enough to be a top 15 quarterback in the league one day? And it's hard to have conviction about any of these quarterbacks right now. Kenny Pickett from Pitt just had he came back for his fifth year, had the senior year that he needed. He has, uh, I think you, you look at it, the, the floor that you want. You know what you're getting with Kenny Pickett. But is he good enough to lead you to a Super Bowl? Is he that kind of quarterback? Malik Willis, he's, he's a bit of a project. He needs some time. I don't, if you're expecting him to come in from day one and be the guy, I, I think that you're going to be a little disappointed. And so maybe with his ceiling, he can get you there. But hopefully the combine can help add some context to that and, and better understand these quarterbacks. Uh, I think the best position this year is edge rusher. I think it's the deepest group. We're going to see maybe a pass rusher off the board with the first pick overall. And then, I mean, I'm, I was doing my rankings, my pre-combine rankings last night, just polishing those up. And it's it's hard to fit all these guys in the top 100. I mean, there's like over 20 pass rushers that deserve to be top 100 picks, first three rounds. So it's just a very, very deep group. Um, I, I think pass rusher, linebacker, wide receiver, those are the strengths of this year. And then the other thing I want to figure out too is – the top of this draft. It's a, it's a it's not a great year to have a top 15 pick relative to other years. And so is there uh, you know maybe a few prospects that surprise us and say, "Hey, you know what? I I am worthy of a top 5 pick. I am worthy of the top pick." And so, you know, I, hopefully this week when we come out of it will help give us a little more context there. For teams that have a lot of those day 3 picks, really an exciting time to mm-hmm. be picking in those spots, those third, fourth round picks. Because there's a lot of guys that could be there, right? Absolutely. And uh, especially this position that I mentioned with pass rusher and receiver. And what's going to happen is they all can't go in the first two rounds, first three rounds. So there's going to be some good players that fall to day three that uh, are uh, available later on. And so it will be interesting when you don't have a top of the draft that's overly strong. And so are we going to see fewer trades this year? Because teams are going to be you know, more hesitant to give up those third, fourth, fifth round picks. It's it's going to be interesting how different teams attack this draft. You know, we just saw a team win the Super Bowl that, you know, punted on the draft, the, the, you know, the last few years, and it obviously worked out for them. How is that going to change strategy for some of these teams? Are they going to try and load up on draft picks? Are they going to try and uh, load up, you know, try to get draft picks for next year, which looks like a stronger draft? So how teams maneuver and how they attack this class will be interesting. Who are a couple of players, three players who can help themselves most here in Indianapolis. Well, you know, I think, like I mentioned, the medicals and the interviews, that's the two most important. That's the reason the Combine is here. It's why the Combine exists. And so, but unfortunately, we don't have access necessarily to that information. So just talking about the on-field, just talking about the position-specific drills, you know, I I think you look at corner, and some of these corners are going to fly. Washington's got two of them, Kyler Gordon, Trent McDuffie, both these guys are going to test outstanding, and quarterback a cornerback one is not set in stone. You know, Derek Stingley from LSU had that great 2019 season. Last two years really didn't live up to it. Injuries involved in that. Um, you know, Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati's in that mix, but Trent McDuffie's right there. Maybe not the biggest. You know, the size wise is not going to be that impressive, 
but he should run high four threes, low four fours, should jump at least 41, maybe 42 inches in the vert, should test really well. And then his teammate, Kyler Gordon, is an even better athlete. Doesn't have the same instincts, but if he tests like he's capable of in the 40, the short shuttle, he's going to get himself in the first round. And then when you some of these other corners, Kalen Barnes from Baylor, he, he's my bet to run the fastest 40 this year. Tariq Woolen from UTSA, he's another burner, 6'3 and a half. Two, over 200 pounds, he should run in the four threes and, and be a top performer, which could bump him up a little bit. Give me your evaluation of the offensive line group that we're going to see here. What do you expect to see? Do you expect to see some guys kind of emerge and pull away from the the rest of the herd a little bit? I love this offensive line class. It's, uh, you know, I think tackle, uh, guard, and center. There's future starters at each position. And with tackle, at the top you've got, uh, with Evan Neal, who's not working out here, but Ikea Kwanu, who he's in the mix to go number one. He's that type of athlete. He's that type of blocker with his power, his explosion. Uh, Charles Cross from Mississippi State's in that mix. Trevor Penning, Northern Iowa. Bernard Raymond, Central Michigan. Those are the first-round guys. And then in the second round, is there someone that emerges? There, there's different, you know, especially a guard, I'll say, because it's a really deep guard class and it's traditionally not a position that teams will go high on in the draft. So a Zion Johnson, a Kenyon Green, uh, where are those guys fit in? Um, and I think on you know on day two, there's a lot of guards that are going to be off the mix with Sawyer from Georgia. And uh, so it, it's, a, it's, it's a deep interior line class. Tyler Linderbaum, where does he come off the board? The Iowa center. There's no player in this draft maybe with a larger variance or wider variance of where he could end up. You've got uh, – you could make an argument he's top 10 in this class and he could go top 10 overall. He could last until uh, you know the Titans pick. He could last until the 30s because he's a center only. He's scheme-specific. He's undersized. But he's just a darn good football player. So uh, Tyler Linderbaum would be interesting. Um, and there's a couple centers on day two. Uh, Luke Fortner from Kentucky I really like, Dylan Parnum from Memphis as well. So a couple centers uh, on day two that project as future starters. Uh, Cole Strange from Chattanooga. So it's it's a really good offensive line class at position by position. Uh, I think you're going to find starters well into day two. Titans need multiple tight ends. Mm-hmm. They don't have any tight ends under contract as we record this. So if they were going to select tight ends – could they wait to day three and take two that day? That might be the sweet spot. You know, this is a really deep tight end class, but I don't know. I don't think we have a first rounder this year. We might not have a top 50 tight end this year, but we're going to see three, maybe four go, you know, late second, somewhere in the third round. And then I think the sweet spot will be that fourth round. Third, fourth round is where we're going to see a lot of these tight ends fly off the board. And they're not going to be the Pro Bowl types. You know, there's no Kyle Pitts this year or anything like that. But if you're looking for a solid tight end, this this draft has that. Um, and, and, you know, with uh, Greg Dolchis from UCLA, I think he'll be one of the winners this week. He should run the fastest of all these tight ends. Good chance we see him second, third round mix. You know, with Trey McBride from Colorado State, Jeremy Ruckert from Ohio State, who I'm really high on, but we won't see him here. He has a foot injury. Maybe that bumps him down a little bit. You get a, a little bit of a discount with him. I think he's going to be a really good pro. But even if you don't draft tight end second, third round, like I said, fourth round, there's going to be plenty of quality tight ends uh, at that point in the draft that you feel comfortable drafting and playing a, a pretty big role early on. You mentioned that wide receiver is one of the strongest groups in this draft. When you look at mock drafts, the Titans in a lot of them mm-hmm. are predicted to pick a wide receiver what is it about that group that makes them so strong? What excites you the most about them? Well, each one brings something different. Uh, you know, Garrett Wilson, to me, from Ohio State, he's the top receiver because of what he does before and after the catch. He can get open, and then he can create. And for a guy that's 5'11", 190, 
he plays like he's 6'3", 215. Uh, he plays a lot bigger than he looks. Uh, and I don't like to use the word elite very often, try to save that. He has elite body control uh, as a receiver. And so Garrett Wilson, to me, that's why he's the top guy. But you could make an argument for Traylon Burks from Arkansas, who's a linebacker-sized Debo Samuel, 6'3", 225. Just find ways to get him the ball, and he's going to create. He's going to run maybe in the 4'4s four at that size. Uh, Drake London, big basketball player who can play above the rim, coming off the injury, so I don't know that we're going to see him this week. We'll see on that. And Jamison Williams from Alabama, He, if not for that ACL, he could be in a conversation to be the first wide receiver off the board. He comes from a track family, and boy, does it show when he runs out there. And he's more than just speed. Maybe not the most natural hands, but doesn't have a ton of drops. I mean, he catches the ball well. Uh, he knows how to leverage that speed as a route runner. So the fact that each one of these receivers brings something a little different, and Chris Olave from Ohio State's in that mix, Jahan Dotson from Penn State, both those guys should be in the four threes and, and do well for themselves. So six wide receivers, in my opinion, belong in the top 25. I don't know that all six will go top 25, but that's just good news if you're picking 26 to you know 35. You might get a, a discount on one of those guys. So many of these guys have played at multiple schools. Does that make them easier to evaluate or harder to evaluate? Well, I, I think, you know, you can look at it both ways. Uh, it's easier because you're going to see them in probably two different schemes. You're going to see them in two different situations, uh, dealing with different teammates and things like that. But at the same time, you want to know, okay, why did he transfer? Was there something going on at the other school? You have to do your due diligence and figure that part out. So a guy like Jamison Williams from Alabama, who was a top recruit, goes to Ohio State, and was just kind of uh, stuck on the depth chart. Uh, because And as soon as Chris Olave decided, hey, I'm coming back for my senior year, that's when Jamison Williams was like, well, okay, I, you know, kind of blocked here with uh, Smith and Jigba in a slot, Garrett Wilson outside, Chris Olave outside. I mean, I'll, I'll see the – I'm too good. I'll see the field a little bit. But you know what? I'm going to go try to find a better opportunity. I don't think anyone's blaming Jamison Williams for, you know, making the transfer that he did. Goes to Alabama, turns into the most explosive player in the SEC – and, you know, so I, I think that's that's a little more of a cut and dry situation. But, uh, you know, they're not all like that. But I think it's 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 both because you have to figure out why he transferred. But then also I think it could be a positive when you break down what he has to do in both schemes and both situations. How much easier was your life getting ready for this upcoming draft in 2022, having an entire college football season in 2021 happen, as opposed to the previous year where there was all kinds of crazy things going on? Yeah, you know, it, that last year was a, an adjustment, um, it, especially when you had some opt-outs. You know, we hadn't seen Jamar Chase. We hadn't seen Rashawn Slater, uh, Penny Sewell. We hadn't seen a lot of these guys since the, the what, nine, 2019 season. So that, that that's something we really hadn't encountered before. And then, you know, you factor in these guys playing in empty stadiums and the travel restrictions and you know some conferences played five games um there wasn't a lot of interconference play you if you're played in the sec you only played sec opponents so last year was definitely an adjustment but i you know it's still going to be a draft still going to try and find players you got to figure it out and so uh I, I think that's uh that, that's how you attacked it last year. This year was definitely uh, back to normal, and that was nice. That, that was nice to kind of get back in normal set of things. We didn't have a combine. Last year, we, I wasn't sitting here with you guys, you know, because we didn't have the combine. And so it's very nice to be back in Indianapolis to get all this information. And, you know, a lot of people, yeah, they might say, oh, combine's overrated and all that. But I, if you really understand how to use all the information here, you know it's not overrated. It's an important step of the process and adds valuable context to what we're doing. Okay, so can we get you to do some thumbnails for us? Just throw yeah, some sure. names. Uh, we'll go back and forth. Yep. All right, I want to start off with Devin Lloyd, the linebacker from Utah. 
diverse uh, linebacker, former high school safety, moved a linebacker at Utah, had what, four interceptions this year, two return for touchdowns. He's just a playmaker, uh, one of the most explosive players in the country. Uh, he was second in, in the entire country in tackles for loss, and it's no shame to be second behind Will Anderson in anything, uh, and that was Devin Lloyd. So to me, he's the best linebacker in the draft. You could do a lot of things with him, either getting him upfield as a blitzer, dropping him in coverage. He's explosive versus the run. So uh, to me, three-down player, total package. Jermaine Johnson, an edge rusher from Florida State. Yeah, and that's a, you talk about the transfers. Another great example of a guy who was maybe not seeing the playing time he wanted at Georgia, and he bet on himself. He says, "I'm going to go. I'm going to. I have a great situation here at Georgia. I'm getting coached. I'm around all these alphas. I know I'm going to get looked at, but I'm going to. I'm going to go to Florida State. I'm going to be the alpha." Uh, he goes to Seminoles for his senior year. He was the guy on that defense. Led the ACC in tackles for loss. Led the ACC in sacks. And what I appreciate most about Jermaine Johnson is. It's not just speed off the edge. He is an above-average run defender. I mean, I, if I clipped his my five favorite plays of his this year from, from watching him on tape, three of them might be versus the run. It, he's a really good pass rusher, but he's also really stout versus the run, uh, instinctive. Uh, he goes to the senior bowl, just confirms what we already knew. He's the, he was the best defense player down there. Uh, I mean, he put himself in the conversation to be a possible top 15 pick. Trevon Walker, outside linebacker, Georgia. Is he a defensive tackle? Is he a defensive end? Is he a, I think that's kind of the appeal with him because George asked him to do a little bit of everything. He would drop in space. He would play inside the tackle, head up over the tackle, and I, they didn't give him a chance to just pin his ears back and go. And I think it, he's going to have a big week this this week uh, when he shows his athletic traits at 275 pounds. Uh, to me, he's one of the best players in the country. It, it, three years from now, if you told me Trevon Walker was the best defense player from this draft, I'd say, yeah, okay, not, not, not surprised at all because he has that type of ability. He was just lost a little bit in that Georgia defense when you know it's full of these future uh, NFL players and what he was asked to do in that scheme, playing so tight on that defensive line. So Trevon Walker, he's my sixth overall player in this draft, very, very high on him. I'm switching over to offense on you. Wide receiver Jahan Dotson from Penn State. Yeah, uh, maybe the best ball skills in this draft. And, you know, he doesn't – physically he's not really that impressive. You know, he, you're going to look at him and you're going to say, oh, you know, buck 80, uh, he's under six foot. But he should run in the four threes. Speed is his friend. And then his his hands are outstanding. You know, he can make plays at all levels of the field. So he's he's in a really strong wide receiver group at the top. He might be the sixth best receiver, which uh, a team in the late first round is going to get a really good player. Overall, I want you to talk about Cade Mays, offensive lineman from Tennessee. Yep, another Georgia transfer goes to Tennessee. I think that the biggest thing with him is positional versatility. You want to play inside, he can play guard. You want to play outside, he's got that experience at tackle. I, I think he started at four different positions over his career. Stout at the point of attack. Uh, doesn't have the, the best range. I think a lot of teams see him best inside a guard. But a guy that is a finisher, loves to sustain, keeps himself centered on blocks. Maybe he gets in that third round, but if not, he's, he'll go early on day three and be a, a position uh, versatile player uh, for the NFL team that drafts him. Another offensive lineman, Tyler Linderbaum from Iowa. Yeah, and like I said before, he's he's you can make an argument he's one of the top ten players in this draft, but you know he's just he's not going to be for everybody when you factor in center only scheme specific. You need a zone that zone scheme, and he's undersized. Uh, he's going to be around two ninety this week, and that's that's okay. That's what he is. And, and so when you start crossing off teams that don't need a center, that don't you know run primarily outside zone that aren't going to draft a center, it, you're only down to so many teams. And though because of that, he could go top 12, 
could go in the late 20s. And so he's a really fascinating player because he's he's one of the best players in this draft. Pound for pound, the most athletic, one of the strongest, one of the meanest dudes in this draft. P- consistently plays beyond the echo of the whistle. Uh, and, and offensive line coaches are going to fall in love with him. But, again, it has to be the right situation for him to come off the board uh, in the first round. Cole Strange, interior offensive lineman, Chattanooga. Big fan of his. And another, you know, you talk about the the journey. Loved his journey uh, as he was a defensive end primarily in high school. Goes to Air Force and after a little bit is like, eh, no, not for me. Comes back home, Chattanooga, and just gets better and better and better on the offensive line. And another guy's got that interior versatility guard or center. Thought he acquitted himself very well at the Senior Bowl. Held up, uh, held his own. And now teams are going to be talking about him possibly on day two because you've got a guy that can be a future starter. You have a guy that can give you that guard center versatility. Really tough. If he doesn't put down that anchor, he can get himself in trouble. But his toughness at the point of attack, his quickness, a uh, big Cole Strange fan. I think he's one of the he's one of probably five centers this year that you could realistically see being a, a long-term starter this year or uh, in the future. One more offensive lineman for you. <laughs> I mean, we're rolling at this point. We You've got to go. Offensive lineman Kenyon Green from Texas A&M. Yeah, he might be the first interior offensive lineman drafted. And uh, talk about position versatility. He has played every single position on that A&M offensive line. And, you know, you watch him 2020, played really well. This year, he lost, the A&M lost four of their five starters on the offensive line. He was the only returner. And that showed at times. And so there was a lot of pressure on him to be the guy. And so they moved him from left tackle to right guard, right tackle to, to left guard. He was all over the place. And he was up to the challenge. I mean, he did a really nice job uh, holding his own. What I love most about him is his balance before and after contact. Really, really good balance. And he finishes. So Kenyon Green, I uh, would not be surprised. He's the first interior offensive lineman drafted this year. Okay, so you get one more. I got one more. Mine is Jeremy Ruckert from Ohio State. You mentioned the injury, yeah. but take that out. Mm-hmm. Take me through who Jeremy Ruckert is as a tight end. Yeah, former top recruit from Long Island, uh, goes to Ohio State and saw a lot of action, just not a lot of targets. Uh, and when you watch Ohio State offense and you see those receivers, you kind of you know, realize why. What he was asked to do as a blocker, and when he was targeted, good things happen. So I see a guy that's going to be a better NFL player than uh, he was in college. Uh, once that target targets go up, so is his production. So uh, I, I think he's a, he's a really good player who could be should be one of the first three tight ends drafted this year. Unfortunately, we won't see him there because of a, a foot injury he suffered at the Senior Bowl. But he it's a minor thing. He'll be at his pro day. Should run well. Should perform well. Like I said, I think he's one of the top three tight ends this year, top 75 type of pick. Mike Keith, I see your tight end, and I raise you a tight end. Go! Tight end Jalen Wittermeyer from Texas A&M. Yeah, one of the only juniors that came out uh, this year at the tight end position. I don't. This is a big week for him. He needs to run well. I don't know that he's, you know, over under four seven to five for him. You know, can he get under that number? That'd be big for him if he does. I don't know that he will. Speeds is not his game, but I think he does a really nice job at the catch point. I think he had eight touchdowns this year. Did a really nice job, especially when the field condensed and he needed to get in the end zone. So I, a guy that I don't think is a slam dunk for the top 100 picks, but we talked about the tight end position, how it's going to stretch a little bit. And when you get to the fourth round, he's an example of one of those players that normally you don't see in the fourth round. But because tight ends, just it's a different tight end year, could end up being a value early day three. Okay, so Dane, we've talked about the draft. We've talked about the combine. We've talked about the beast from the athletic. We've talked about your new kids. How is everything going with your grilling? <laughs> when we when we visited last time in person, you right. gave us and, and several people commented on your passion for grilling. Do you still have that? Did the pandemic help that? Did it hurt that? Where are we on that? Uh, the twins hurt that. Okay, uh, you know that's 
that that's something that took a chunk of my time away. Um, so you know, the last eight months has been not as much uh, smoking and, and and grilling as I would like. But uh, I live in Ohio, so it's cold for you know six months out of the year. But once we get into the spring, once we get past the draft, that's something I plan on getting right diving right back into. But that and, really is a passion. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I. I I don't have a ton of passions, but the ones I do, I, I go all in on. Uh, NFL draft is up there, but smoking is right behind it in terms of, uh, you know, seeing what we could do with uh, brisket, seeing what we could do with uh, some ribs, seeing what we could do with all these different meats. It's uh, it's hey, if you do it right, there's nothing better, right? Amy He's Wells making is making me lov- so happy. Is loving this, <laughs> making me so happy. Well, you, hey, you guys are in the right part of the country, uh, where you guys are from, to to get some good barbecue. We've so. been a few places. Yeah, I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah, we've been a few yeah, places. Yeah, when I visit, uh, you guys tell me where to go. Hey, yeah. you come on down we've anytime. Dane Brugler from the Athletic. Thanks so much for the time. Anytime, guys. Thanks. That's Dane Brugler. Yes. Good talking with him, especially about his grilling skills. Oh, man. He said brisket, and I couldn't hear anything else. Anybody, that's where my brain shorts out. Anybody who has big-time grilling skills, I'm all for. The fact that he knows a lot about the draft, too, puts him right up there for me. <laughs> it makes him the all-around renaissance man. He can tell you about the draft. He can tell you about grilling. He can tell you about parenting. Like, what more do you need out of a person? What more do you need? Well, what we need right now is Andrew Beaton. From the Wall Street Journal, and you're saying, wait a minute, this is the OTP. The OT people are thinking, I don't need stock tips. <laughs> I don't need information on IPOs. I'm, I'm interested in the, in the sports world. Andrew Beaton covers sports for the Wall Street Journal. I've mentioned him on the OTP before. I think he's excellent. Oh, yes, and he's a very intelligent man who is able to write the sports stories that you don't see all the time from a traditional sports publication. So they're not talking about the daily scores or this silly trite thing that happens. They're getting down to the nitty-gritty, the deep stories, the things you want to hear about, and he's just a good writer. And he knows a lot about the Titans for a good reason, which you will learn here as Andrew Beaton joins us at the 2022 NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis on this edition of the OTP. Andrew Beaton, Wall Street Journal Sports. Now, I got to say, welcome, by the way. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Okay. When people think of the Wall Street Journal, they don't think of sports first. You know this, right? I don't have any stock tips for you. I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> How did you get involved with the Wall Street Journal? How did that happen that you go to write sports for the Wall Street Journal? Well, it's just kind of some good luck and some hard work, I suppose. You know, I interned for them after college, and then that led to freelancing, then a full-time job. But the one thing I've always loved about the journal sports section is that, in a sense, you are right, that it's not necessarily the first thing you think of when you think of the Wall Street Journal. But that also gives us a lot of latitude to, you know, say, we don't have to write about what happened in yesterday's game all the time. But we're going to write one story that we want to be really good. We want you to think it's funny, interesting, smart, insightful, serious, important, whatever it is. We want it to be impactful. We want people to care about it. And it lets us sort of take a step back and put some really good work in. You do that. You do that well. I appreciate and it. And I've told Amy for a long time I enjoyed reading your stuff. And then we get ready for the playoffs, 
and I sent everyone your piece on the Tennessee Titans. I sent everyone, Literally every everyone in the organization. Yes. <laughs> I said, this is the guy who has hit who we are better than anyone. Of, of all the national folks, you got – what we were all about. Now, it didn't work out for us, and, and, you know, that's part of it. That hurts. But you understood that. How did you come to know the Titans the way you did? Well, i got to say my best friend, childhood friend, is a lifelong Titans fan. Okay, what's, not, really? what's his story? He's the one person who grew up in New York and was smart enough to not root for the Jets or Giants. <laughs> <laughs> and he had family from, from the area. And always love the Titans. And so I've always kept a little bit of a closer eye on them because I always get an earful about how they're doing from him. But I think when you're looking at the team this year, you just kind of had to watch them. And it wasn't hard to watch them because you saw them play a lot of good teams and they played really well against a lot of those teams. And if that seems surprising to anybody, well, why don't we just look at the last couple years? You know, this is a team that when it found its guy in Ryan Tannehill all of a sudden really looked like a different monster when they were able to feed Derrick Henry and unleash their different weapons. This is a team that it didn't really come out of nowhere. If you watch them this year, if you watch their progression over the last couple of years, this was a team that evolved into somebody that you could say, this is a team that has a really high floor, right? There's some teams you look at that they can have a low floor or a high ceiling. This team that really felt like it had a high floor because you know that there's a stable coaching staff that you can have a lot of faith in. There's a lot of good pieces on both sides of the ball that things can go pretty well for them. As someone who's covering all 32 teams, you know, how do you really hone in on which team you're going to write a story about or which topic it is that you're going to dive deeper in? Because as you said, you've got that latitude to really dive into a subject and really dive into a team if that's what you choose to do. How do you kind of narrow down the entire National Football League into what you're going to focus on? You know, it's kind of the fun part of the job because you get to zero in on, I like to think that if something interests me, I hope it'll interest readers, right? And so if I think there's something that people aren't talking about, but I find really interesting, well, that's something to zero in on and say, you know, this is something where we can teach people something new, explain a team or a player or a scheme in a way that ha maybe in a different way than it's been explained before and zeroing in on saying, all right, where does it feel like that a new voice would add something, whether that's about a team, a player, a coach. It could be really a fan base. It could be anything. And then just trying to take that opportunity and run with it. So here's an example of that from Andrew Beaton with the Wall Street Journal. Gearing up for the Super Bowl, he delves in and comes away with the conclusion that the biggest investment that the Bengals and the Rams have made, wide receivers. You, you made that you, – you said, hey, look, this is where they've spent their money. This is where they've spent their capital. They're both here for a reason. They're analytics that show it. How did you come up with that? Well, it's something that was really fascinating going back to the last draft, right? Because Cincinnati already had their guy in Joe Burrow. They knew that. And they also watched him get pummeled and pummeled over and over last season until he got hurt. And so they have another top pick again because they have another crummy season after Burrow's hurt. And – the common wisdom was, all right, they have to spend that top pick in order to get someone who can help Joe Burrow stay upright. You know, they're going to draft a tackle. They're going to draft a guard. Somebody that can help protect Joe Burrow. No, but what did they do? They drafted Jamar Chase. And if you looked at their team, you wouldn't have said wide receiver was a position of need, right? Well, they got T. Higgins. They got Tyler Boyd. I mean, they've got, they've got people. They've got people. Instead, they added the, number, the best receiver in the draft in Jamar Chase. 
which is really interesting because, you know, you can only throw the ball to the receivers if your quarterback's staying upright. Yeah. But they did it anyway. And it didn't just pay off because Jamar Chase turned out to be awesome. It paid off because look at what it did to T. Higgins. Boyd came through in huge games. And if it looks like that's weird or an anomaly, we've all watched football over the last few years and seen that playing with three receivers on the field is basically normal at this point. So shouldn't you be treating that as just another starter? Shouldn't you be doing that? And if you look at the way these teams have operated, that's what they've done. And even when the Rams signed Odell Beckham Jr., that was adding a this taking a risk. He's a mercurial talent. But they did that even before Robert Woods got hurt. They had incredible depth there, but it was a risk worth taking for a team that says the Rams basically always play with at least three receivers on the field. And what two teams led the league in 11 personnel? It happened to be the Rams number one, the Bengals number two. Look at that. He's good. He's really good. Yeah, that's what I told you. (laughs) That's what I told everybody when I sent him the article. I know, he did. Can we talk about a different article that you wrote that I really would like to discuss with you? Absolutely. I'm so excited about this. One of my favorite controversies, we'll call it, from the 2021 season was Aaron Rodgers' COVID toe. Um, which he says wasn't COVID. Which though. he says was not COVID toe. Um, to the point where the screenshot of him showing his toes is one of my favorite pictures of all time. Andrew, she sends it to everybody. All it's the really time. not great. I think it's great. It's awful. You have an interesting role in that because you wrote the article that ultimately upset Aaron Rodgers. I would like to um, just kind of get your take on what that experience was like being in a situation like that. And ultimately, he ended up getting angry at kind of the wrong person. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it it turned out to just be a sort of unfortunate misunderstanding. Um, But if you think back to the way the saga had played out through the course of the year, um, you know, Aaron had said he was immunized. Then that leads to some people feeling like he misled folks when it turned out he had not been vaccinated. He misses that game against the Chiefs. There's kind of a lot swirling in the air. And he comes out of that time with a toe injury that hadn't really been expanded upon. And I think one of the things about covering the NFL over the last couple years is that part of the job has been covering COVID. Right. And you, you learn about the virus through the NFL. Like the first year we learned about if you do social distancing, masking, all these things in the facility, it can actually help prevent spread. And you've learned a lot about COVID. And so when he referred to the injury as COVID toe on the Pat McAfee show, we knew that COVID toe was an actual symptom. We weren't trying to slander the guy in any way just trying to report on what he'd referred to his injury as and then that leads to another kerfuffle and so it went oh man it 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 led to the greatest screenshot ever taken from a zoom is really what it led to but i mean it was awful oh i love it so much it was almost my christmas card this year (laughs) you think you think she's kidding i'm really not but how hard was it during I mean, that time where access is limited, a lot of your information and quotes and things like that are coming from either other appearances on random show, the Pat McAfee show, other Zoom calls that people do. A lot of things are coming from social media. It's got to really muddy the waters when you don't have clear media availability or access to guys to speak to them like you're used to as a reporter. 
Yeah, and it, that's actually one of the nice things about being back here at this NFL Combine is that we all get to see each other in person again because there's nothing really makes up for those face-to-face, people-to-people interactions where you can have conversations that are insightful and really get to connect with somebody. And I think that's now that we can get our vaccines, get our boosters, and start coming back to these events, it's not just about coming to the Combine to see how many times a guy can get a rep in on the bench press. It's about seeing people, meeting people, and trying to establish those same connections again. That's funny. I was just visiting with some other folks who said it's like homecoming. It is. It's like it's yeah. like you're you're returning to your school after not seeing anybody for two years because it was when we left here two years ago that everything hit. It was funny. We left here on February the 28th, and I went somewhere on February the 29th. I was speaking at a school, and the head of school was announcing at that point we may have to do learning remotely. And he was explaining to the students before I went on how this would work. And I was sitting here listening to this thinking, that's crazy. And now, two years later, it's a part of our life. COVID has been a part of our life in every way, including in the NFL. And yet, after years of the NFL seemingly being hit by different things, the NFL might have had its best year ever. Why do you think that is, Andrew? I think there's a lot of reasons. First of all, I think we could turn on the games every week and see that the football is just fun, right? I mean, I think when people have tried to, over the years, break down why, why are ratings up, down, there's a lot of reasons that people will throw out there. But I think the one that always stands out to me is the ratings seem to go up when the games are more exciting. And I think, think we had a lot of really, really exciting games this year. Heck, I mean, that those couple weeks in the playoffs, I don't think... I've never seen anything like it's that. It's the greatest playoffs ever. Right. Yeah, I think. Yep. Right, and the Super Bowl was decided by three points. That almost felt like a letdown after things <laughs> right. we'd seen right before that. So we had these absolutely batty playoffs coming off a season that seemed to have those types of frenetic endings every week. And the football was just really good because you could look at so many different fan bases that have been itching to get to where they have been. And that's one of the cool things, too, where, all right, we saw the Patriots win for two decades, sure. But this year, the idea that the favorites next year might be teams like Buffalo and Cincinnati, I mean, those are the, for lack of a better phrase, the most tortured fan bases around. <laughs> so there's you, you look across the country and fan bases that had been maybe disenfranchised or hadn't had reasons to get up and get excited and watch their teams, it's it's a really good moment for the league in that regard. What stories are you chasing down around the NFL Combine and beyond? At the Combine, I always f- think of it as, you know, I don't have to write about the Combine itself, but it's really trying to get my finger on the pulse for the upcoming draft. And it's a great moment to start thinking about that, start talking to people, and start thinking, all right, what am I going to write about, even if it's not today or tomorrow, but in a month or so? And because there's a lot of teams, whether it's the Titans or, or someone else who, who have a lot of big things to decide. So you've got to give a shout out to your friend here on the OTP. What's his name? And does he, is he an OTP subscriber? Give us the update on him and his life that, that you have this person in your life. Well, he, his name is Brian Weisgall. He's a lawyer who lives in New Jersey. By the way, Brian. Get it, Brian. And the one thing he wanted me to make sure to say is that he really hopes the Titans hit on their first round pick this year because he hasn't been exactly thrilled with the last couple so oh wait a minute so brian's coming with a comment here huh? coming in hot he's coming in hot all right brian all let's right. go so he the isaiah wilson thing yeah okay but 
tell Brian, Caleb Farley's going to be fine. Tell him, Caleb Farley's going to do a great job. Yep. I happen to agree with you. We are, we are really excited about Caleb Farley. And, you know, we have proof, too, because Christian Fulton, who we took in the second round in 20, uh, came on in 21. And that's what we think is going to happen with Caleb Farley. We, I think Caleb Farley is going to be a star. Oh, absolutely. I think the trajectory for him once he is healthy and able to really do the things that his body requires, uh, that the position requires his body to do, um, the sky's the limit for him because he was picking up on things so quickly as a rookie. Kevin Byard even said right. he was amazed by how quickly he was able to learn and adjust, especially having an on-again, off-again college career. And the one thing I'd also add is it's a position where I think we often see maybe a slower developmental timeline in True. the NFL. Mm -hmm. You know, there's guys who can come in and play line, so on and so forth immediately. But when you're in his role, I feel like you see a lot of early struggles. You're adjusting to new schemes, what it's like to go up against the physicality of NFL players. And it's a particularly big adjustment when I'm looking at that. All right. So what's the biggest story of this entire offseason? Not just the combine. From the Wall Street Journal sports point of view, what's the biggest what's the biggest story? What are you what are you looking for? I think the biggest stories have to do with ownership this offseason, right? I mean, you look across the league and it is a pretty raw and sensitive and controversial moment with questions ranging about the allegations from the Brian Flores lawsuit, which touches on some pretty sensitive areas in Miami when you think about his allegation that they offered to pay him to lose games. You have another investigation into Dan Snyder and his behavior. So there's a lot of questions swirling around ownership and how those get sorted through, what the conclusions are there, may prove to be the biggest, most consequential things this offseason, except maybe if Aaron Rodgers leaves Green Bay. We have a great owner, you know, one of the most powerful females in all of sports. I wonder if this moment doesn't elevate her, if the league doesn't say we need more of your perspective in this moment. And I think that would be a great thing for our league because if you look at what she's done with our franchise, it's pretty remarkable. We when she took us over, it was not great. No, it was not great. And the amount of changes that she has made to the Titans organization and the amount of kind of foresight that she has had with investing in certain areas of the organization and kind of keeping the Titans at the forefront of a lot of things. But also trying to diversify the organization and 100%. trying to do more things in the community. It feels like that's more of where the league wants to be right now. So. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we've learned, whether it's in football, sports at large, or business at large, is over the last several years, and that has been a really salient message, is that diversity of thought cannot be underestimated. Sure. Whether that is race or gender or background or any different way you want to slice it up, but elevating different voices and having different perspectives goes a really long way to running any successful organization. Tell people that they can follow you on the Twitter machine. They can follow me on the Twitter machine at Andrew L. Beaton. Andrew L. Beaton. You do a great job. And so glad to finally meet you in person. Uh, appreciate you knowing about the Titans, too, and keeping those Wall Street Journal folks knowing all about those Titans. Tell Brian we're with him. We look forward to meeting him. Perfect. I'll tell him to say hey next time he's in Nashville. Let's do it. It's Andrew Beaton from the Wall Street Journal. 
Hey, let the experts at Farm Bureau Health Plans coach you through it. When you need great health care coverage at a price you can afford, they've been protecting Tennesseans for 75 years. How about a little bit of a preview of the home team here, and the home team, not the Titans in this case because we're in Indianapolis, the Colts, as we visit with the voice of the Colts, Matt Taylor, in what is an incredibly interesting time around the horseshoe. I think interesting is the best way to describe it, Mike. If you want to hear some insight, listen to Matt Taylor here as part of the OTP, and I think you will be fascinated to hear what our AFC South rivals are working their way through right now as we continue on the OTP. So, Matt Taylor, as we talk Colts, we talk uncertainty. Is that <laughs> thanks? Is that really? I mean, is that really how we have to start the conversation? That would be a good word. There's a lot of up in the air between now and mid-March, and then heading into the draft, and then training camp. Yeah, it's the Colts going off on a tangent already, but the Colts are a well-built team, a well-put-together team. They've mm-hmm. drafted very well in the last four or five years. I think top to bottom they have one of the best overall rosters in the league when you talk about depth, uh, but they need premium players at premium positions. And if you've listened to me in Indianapolis in the last two months, you've probably heard me say that 400 times um, considering what we saw in the playoffs and needing dominant players at edge rusher and quarterback and wide receiver the Colts best players are at running back and linebacker and defensive tackle and uh, left guard right so those are not they're they're really important positions but when you're talking about the top five most important positions on any NFL team I don't think those would make the list I I mean I the Carson Wentz of it all. I'm trying to form a the question. Car- the Car- Carson Wentz of it all. I, yeah, I mean, really just that. Is the uncertainty there as prominent within the Colts facility as it seems to be from yes. the outside looking in? Yes. I mean, anytime you're getting – it was as much of what was said at the end of the season by Chris Ballard and Frank Reich, and it was also about what they didn't say at the end of the season in terms of – you know, support um, and being definitive on the future of the team at that position. You know, if you go back to last year, you know, Phillip Rivers had just wrapped up his first year with the Colts and he was going to be a free agent again. And both Frank and Chris were candid in saying, we would love to have Phillip back. He's got to weigh his decision. He's got some things to go through, you know, from a career standpoint. But yes, we would be very much open to bringing him back for another year. We just didn't hear that this past uh, season with Carson Wentz. We didn't hear that this go around. So, you know, obviously that opens things up for speculation, and then you're getting national reports from ESPN and a guy who's very, you know, clued into especially the Colts franchise and Chris Mortensen. So, and clued into quarterbacks. Precisely. And, and their agents. Precisely. So, you know, we're just trying to figure out how much fire is there around all the smoke. And, you know, so that's why I bring up, you know, we're going to find out here coming up in mid-March when Carson Wentz is owed some more guaranteed money on the contract. Um, but, yeah, like I said, the Colts are in a 
similar spot this offseason as compared to where they were last offseason, where we're talking about who's going to play quarterback. Is T.Y. Hilton going to come back? Last year he was a free agent. He's a free agent again this offseason, but he's also contemplating retirement. Do the Colts need more firepower at wide receiver? Do they need more depth at, at, um, at cornerback? You know, last year they gambled on their young committee at pass rusher led by Quiddy Pay, who was only a rookie. Dio Adangbo, they drafted in the second round out of, out of Vanderbilt, down in your guys' neck of the woods. And really, he had a half a season because he started the year on PUP and was coming off an Achilles injury, getting ready for the draft about this time last year. So, yeah, the Colts, even outside of quarterback, they've got a lot of questions as they try to compete with the Cincinnati's, the Tennessee's, the Kansas City's of the world. I mean, the Colts had seven Pro Bowlers last year. A lot of guys make All Pro, but they went nine and eight. So this offseason, we're all asking ourselves: Do the Colts need to deviate from their strategy and roster building and roster construction in order to keep up with the Joneses, if you will, in the AFC, which is stacked with young quarterbacks and great teams who aren't going anywhere in the near future? And an owner who was clearly unamused. It, it does not seem like he's going to be interested to hear, well, we're just going to be patient. We're just going to continue to put building blocks in place. It feels like he's saying to Chris Ballard, I want to do something now. Well, I mean, at the end of the season, it was the Colts definitely, you know, peaked. They hit their high point of the season on Christmas night. Beat the Cardinals in prime time. They were really tested in terms of depth that night. They were ravaged. I mean, day of the game, they had four or five guys land on the COVID list, and you're thinking, holy my, how are they going to field the team? How are they right. going to compete? Who's going to play left guard? Who's going to play all these different positions? And, again, how well they are built really came to the forefront because they didn't miss a beat. They won the game. They won in a hostile environment on Christmas night. And in week 17, they played the Raiders at home. Week 18, they played the Jaguars to end the season on the road. Heading into those two games, the Colts, analytically speaking, had a 98% chance of making the playoffs, and they didn't get it done. They lost those two games. Week 18 was an absolute disaster considering they were favored by 15.5 points, never showed up, got ran out of the gym that game, and considering all that was on the line for them uh, in that contest, I don't know how you sugarcoat it. I mean, that was one of the worst regular season losses in the history of the franchise. And at the end of that trip, Chris Ballard and Frank Wright got called into Jim Ursay's office, office, excuse me, and he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to get some things off his chest. He was very upset. He was very disappointed considering how the last two games unfolded, inconsistency at quarterback, uh, you know, some up and down une- unevenness, if you will, on the offense unable to stop people on defense. It was just sort of a perfect storm of negative things to end the season for the Colts, considering they control their own destiny. All they had to do was win one of those two games against, in my opinion, inferior competition, and they didn't get the job done. So that kind of sparked you know, Jim Ursay's feelings on the direction of this team. He's normally a standoffish owner. He hires people to do the job. He lets them do the job. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have experience and he doesn't have opinions. And I think he has voiced his opinion when it comes to the direction of this team at, at quarterback. So, Matt, it is not crazy to think from what you're saying that the Colts don't have a number one pick. Your first selection comes at 47, and then you pick again at 82, right? If Correct. I got that? Okay. Yes, yes. 
But it's not crazy to think if they could go get one of the big names out there, even if they had to trade number ones for the next couple years. And a player. And a player. Yeah. and They're going to have to give up a player if okay. they go that route. Yeah, yeah. so if, if they're giving up a bunch, they would be willing to do it right now based on what the owner wants. That would not surprise you. Well, like I said, it, they haven't gone that route. It would be a change. It would definitely be a yep. change. And, again, that's what we're asking ourselves in Indianapolis for the past two months, given the fact the Colts didn't make the playoffs. They've got a great team top to bottom, but they went 9-8. and eight. That just kind of underlines and bold italicize whatever you want to say, the importance of quarterback and having top five players at premium positions – and, you know, the Colts are historically a team under Chris Ballard that they want to have a lot of draft picks. Um, they want to be prudent in free agency, be very mindful of who they're bringing in because they want to have guys fit the culture, fit the team, fit, you know, what they're trying to build. But as we saw, Cincinnati, they've got Jamar Chase, and they've got a really good, solid group of, you know, core pass rushers and a really good defense. And obviously Burrow speaks for himself. Same thing with Tennessee and Kansas City. You know, it's like, what do the Colts need to do? How aggressive do they need to be in order to keep up with the Joneses? Because they have this window of opportunity right now. I mean, Jonathan Taylor's in his prime. He's under his rookie contract, right? You need to maximize that as much as you can. You just paid Darius Leonard. DeForest Buckner's here. Kenny Moore is still under contract. So you've got the necessary pieces at a lot of different positions on the team. So you don't want to squander that. But, you know, it's never about one guy. I understand that. But a lot of it is about one guy. Not the whole piece, but, you know, the quarterback sort of drives this thing. I mean, are the Cincinnati Bengals a AFC caliber playoff roster or AFC title contending roster? Probably not, but, you know, the Colts weren't – they didn't have that type of roster in 2014 with Andrew Luck either. So he kind of masked a lot of deficiencies. So the Colts are ready to go right now. They just need a quarterback, but not having a first-round pick and having uncertainty with Carson Wentz, obviously it's way easier said than done. There are also some coaching changes within the Colts organization with Matt Eberflus leaving. You've got a new defensive coordinator, and along with that comes linebackers coach, a wide receivers coach that is rumored to maybe be Reggie Wayne. Some of those position coaches, how can that maybe shake up within the culture, within some of the rooms, yeah. maybe make an impact and just give a team that seems to be really frustrated maybe a breath of fresh air? Well, specifically on defense, the Colts have been a top 10 scoring defense three out of the last four years under Matt Eberflus. So it's not like they're a bad defense. Um, the hallmarks of that defense the last couple of years have been flying to the ball, creating takeaways, and being really good at stopping the run. I mean, last year uh, or two years ago, the Colts finished number two in run defense. This past season, they forced 33 takeaways, which was number two in the NFL. And they talked about in training camp, hey, we want to have 40 takeaways. 40 takeaways? Like that hasn't been done since 2012 in the NFL, and people kind of laughed at it and rolled their eyes at it. But Towards the end of the season, the Colts were on pace for 39. They ended up getting 33, so they're really good at stripping the ball. Darius Leonard, I mean, I mean, what can you say about that guy? He leads the NFL among linebackers in forced fumbles, interceptions since he broke into the league in 2018. So that is the strength of the defense. The weakness under Matt Eberflus on that side of the ball is anything relating to pass defense and most specifically completion percentage allowed. And it's not just great quarterbacks, it's – 
middle-of-the-road quarterbacks have had really big days passing the ball against the Colts. I mean, Gardner Minshew. Uh, I mean, I can go on well, and on and on. We, but We had that problem, right? <laughs> I mean, the Colts have routinely, they, they did give up a high completion percentage. I mean, Drew Brees had a historically great game. Aaron Rodgers had some great games against the Colts. So I think there's room for improvement under Gus Bradley, and that's what I'm eager to see is how do his schemes in the back end running a cover three and kind of a hybrid system where you're running uh, man-to-man over here and cover three or a matchup zone over here on this on, on different sides of the football or different sides of the field, how does that um, complement what the Colts have personnel-wise? So I'm eager to see how that's going to shake out starting in the OTA period. But, yeah, that, that's, that's where the Colts are trying to get is to marry the strength and to improve on what was a weakness in, in terms of just – you know, sl- I mean, they didn't give up big plays in the passing game, but teams were able to just maneuver their way down the field with high completion percentage, and the pass rush hasn't been what it needs to be if you're going to play that soft zone coverage and keep everything in front of you. That was a very frank conversation. It was a very frank conversation, and I appreciate that from old Matt Taylor. He's a good guy, very good young announcer, I think one of the bright lights in the business. And over the next three weeks, he is going to have some very interesting time because two weeks from today at 3 o'clock Central Time, the top 51 rule takes effect. And so you have to be under the salary cap at that point. What's interesting, too, is some guys have these clauses in their contract triggered oftentimes on the fifth day of the fiscal year, which means that would come five days after the 16th or March the 21st. Interesting. 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 Indeed. So the Colts, I think, are going to have a very interesting next 18 or so days. There's a lot of stuff to watch in the National Football League, Mike Keith. This is a very exciting time. We'll have another OTP for you on Thursday. But for Amy Wells, I'm Mike Keith. Thanks so much for joining for the Wednesday edition of the OTP, the March 2nd version of the OTP. Presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. And once again, thank you for joining us for the official Titans Pipe. Welcome to the big show where the legends go. Everybody knows it's our high.